didn't see you there. Something big is going on here. From hunting ghosts to Bigfoot. Paranormal, UFOs, true crime, and more. We won't just be spouting articles. I was researching for your entertainment. The beginning of a new world. <laughs> the best guac you'll ever fucking eat. True story. It's basically like one day you walk outside and you see that the ants are playing with matches. This, this is the Black Cat Report. See you on the other side. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of the Black Cat Report. As promised, we've got a pretty dense episode for you today, giving you the most thorough breakdown of Anatoly Slivko that's available in the English language. But first, want to give some shout outs. Shout out to Isabel and her mom for, for tipping us off to Slivko. The last time we ran a poll on Instagram, Isabel's mom, Selena, and I ended up chatting about serial killers, and she mentioned him. We would probably have never have heard of him if it wasn't for y'all, and we really appreciate the tip. Now, if any of you have any weird or obscure monsters, cryptids, alien abduction stories, or hauntings you would like to see covered, hit us up on Instagram or Facebook at Black Cat Report, Twitter at Black Cat Pod, or send us an email at contact at blackcat.report. One of us is pretty much always online, and we love talking to y'all. Now, when we last left off, Slivko had accidentally murdered his first victim in 1964, started a youth club called Club Romantic in 1966, went on to get married in 67, and somehow managed to have his first son, Igor, in 71. Well, in between those dates, in 1968, the part of the building hosting Club Romantic burned down after someone left a stove on overnight. I'm assuming most likely after cooking a Hot Pocket. Later that same year, after recognizing how popular Club Romantic was getting, the city committee gave the club a brand new location at the Palace of Chemists, right in the heart of the city. This was hands down the most important cultural center in the city. And with the fancy new location came a fancy new name, Club Shergid, which means through the rivers, mountains, and valleys. Um, so why was it called Club Romantic in the first place? That's kind of weird for kids. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it is a weird name, but it doesn't really say like why it was named that. He just named it that and every adult was like yeah. Okay. <laughs> that sounds That's perfect. cool. You're gonna you're gonna take my kids into the woods for hours and I don't have to deal with them? All right. Call it whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... um, have we look at the translation? Cause maybe sometimes the translation it's not um like literal, I guess. Like like, uh, you know, like maybe in Russian, what translates to romantic meant something else in Russian. I don't know. I think it, so. It definitely is club romantic. Like that's the, the direct translation of it. But I do think like culturally it has like um, um, kind of like when we say like to romanticize something or to like, you know, go on this like epic quest, this romantic quest kind of a thing. Like I, I don't think it is tied to the. The sexual the same way that it is in our culture you know at least i really hope that it's not because otherwise it really is that bad <laughs> yeah. john wayne gacy's romantic clown club you know like let's take like... our kids there <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah so i'm assuming you know but sure good uh it's it's an awesome name i mean it i checked it a bunch of times the translation literally is through the rivers mountains and valleys yeah that's which is better. like that's a dope name for like a camping adventure club you know yeah mm -hmm. i would totally sign up 
Hell yeah. So I would too. <laughs> we're starting our own camp for good. Um, and <laughs> um, it's for yeah. adults. For adults only. Um, <laughs> so, well, anyways, uh, continuing along with the story, um, almost for almost two full decades, the new club, Trigid, would become a staple of youth social life in the community thanks to the tireless efforts and dedication of its founder, Anatoly Slivko, who the young kids now lovingly called Uncle Tolia. Okay. <laughs> it's, mm. I mean, he's hanging around a bunch of kids, and it was kind of like, you know, hey, call me uncle. Call me this. Call me that. At least he didn't say, call me daddy. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I well, mean, he didn't say that, you know, he didn't say that around the Sorry. Yeah, it's going to get more cringy, y'all. Um, so... From membership in the low hundreds before the move in 1968 to eventually having over 2,000 at its height by 1971, Trigid was well on its way to becoming a cultural force. But with such a massive rise in popularity, Slivko needed to begin introducing new systems of organization. You see, he wasn't just taking a handful of kids into the nearby forest for a camping trip anymore. He was now leading entire troops on multi-day expeditions across the region. And this stuff was crazy. So, like, this area of the country of Russia um, was a pretty uh, pretty intense location during the war when Germany came in and, like, occupied parts of Russia. So these kids were literally going in with, like, um, mining equipment and stuff and, like, digging up old, like, um, Soviet and, like, Russian helmets and, like, old shells from, like, the battles and everything like that in the valleys. And they actually ended up creating their own museum at the club that was dedicated to the defense of that region and the war and like learning about the history so for the kids i mean it was literally like you're going to go on this awesome camping trip like out in you know the middle of nowhere and do all these cool things and you're also like learning about history at the same time which is like sick (laughs) you know you're like literally digging artifacts out of the ground well Older children were starting to take charge of planning and organizing trips for the younger members, with diaries and reporting systems for leaders being put in place. And a new point system was created to help enforce and encourage good behavior. Now, these points would be given to troop members if they messed up, but they could be removed if they showed good camaraderie with other members or by volunteering for specific tasks. Slivko's dedication to the club was beyond question. He completely ignored his wife and his newborn son and spent all of his free time planning and running Trigid. He didn't have a social life and never smoked or drank alcohol, stating later, quote, I worked with children. I felt responsible. This is a matter of my morality, a matter of principle. I could not appear, of, I could not appear in front of the children with the smell of alcohol. I did not communicate with anyone. I did not know the neighbors, and I did not strive for anything. I did not envy anyone. The thing is, Slivko was absolutely incredible with kids. Even knowing what we know now, um, in the light of all that becomes known about him, this point comes up over and over again. In 2016... Oh, oh, go ahead. Um, While we were doing research, the first... 
um, source that we had was a documentary that was translated into English. And in it, there was a story about how this kid was part of this camping trip and he was struggling with his bag and he was falling behind. And this kid comes up to him and says, hey, I need to work off some points. Can I carry your bag for you? And the kid was like, oh, cool. And then he later found out, he was like, cool, yeah. And so he later found out that Slivko was the one that actually told the kid, hey, you see that guy, go help him out. Tell him this so that he's not embarrassed. Aww. Yeah, it was, I mean, like his leadership and stuff like that, especially with like little kids and like everybody's egos and stuff. Like it was, it just, a, he was good at it like if you can somehow separate what eventually becomes known about him which i feel is is necessary to understand the impact of everything um he was genius you know like the kid the yeah like selena was saying the it was literally like hey i need to work off points and the kid even said later he's like if he would have told me he just wanted to help my ego wouldn't have allowed him to help me but when I saw him before he was getting onto a, a train to go into military training, um, and that came up, um, he told me, "Oh, I didn't have any points." Like Slivko told me to do that. Like he was, he was really good with kids. Um, he was good with the ones he didn't experiment on. <laughs> yes. Uh, eh, um, he a was actually. Bit. Well, okay. So, like now, I understand why parents were so mm-hmm. heartbroken by it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Because they were like, I... oh my God, he was so good. He was such a great guy. Uh, he t- he took care of our kids and uh, he was a great leader. And kind of like you were saying, or I forgot who said this, but like if later we find out that Betty White was a pedophile. Yep. Yeah. And just be like Betty, if Betty White, if somebody that was like the the level and status of innocence and awesomeness of like Betty White, where it just came out that like she had this crazy, like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of situation going on. Everybody would be like, what the fuck? (laughs) You know, and that's that's the closest thing I can give to like how the community will react to all of this. And I mean, we have also two other examples, too. The two other examples were the Catholic Church recently, and yeah. you know the same thing. Everybody was like, "We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our souls." And then obviously, you know, we trust you yeah. with our children. Oh no, my children. God, that was a mistake. Yeah, and yeah. the same for the Boy Scouts as well. You know, with uh, all the what happened? There was a lot of uh, people accusing <clears throat> of people in Boy Scouts and the leaders that they were. Uh, taking advantage of kids as well and a lot of that happened like i think 10 years ago or five years ago yeah there was like photographic evidence and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so a lot of it's been like those are two examples that we're living with right now you know that's yeah and and michael jackson michael jackson (laughs) but that's i mean it's i would i would almost venture to like push over to the michael jackson side because the other like the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church, those are institutions that people are identifying as a single thing, right? Oh, yeah. um, but it's really the actions of a bunch of individuals in it and the messed up system that yeah. makes it bad. And it also allows people to forgive it and stuff. This is one man who seriously will like rise to the top as like a celebrity. Um, and it's just so focused on him, which like, 
I don't know. It it, it has a has a slightly different feel, but that that's super close. So, um, yeah. But but back to um, back to a testimony. So, um, in 2016, after being asked if at any point people noticed something weird or off about Slivko, a former member, Tatiana Kozovan, replied, "We did not notice anything bad. Slivko was perfect for all of us." An even, calm voice, no mockery, no offense to those who made a mistake in something, unobtrusive support for those who needed it. All these pluses would overshadow any of the obvious minuses. Um, and, and in another pl- reply to answer Betsabe's question from Slivko Part 1, uh, someone asked Tatiana, um, someone asked if Tatiana thought Slivko was very handsome. <laughs> Her response, quote, No, Slivko did not impress the girls because he was short, restrained with pursed lips, but his eyes were most striking, blue and cold. We, then teenage girls, said that if it were not for his looks, then all the girls would fall in love with him. <laughs> and, so, and so he was infinitely respected and unquestionably obeyed. And that it's the the best way that that was the best quote I could find to summarize his looks. It's just like everybody's like, God, he would be the perfect man if it wasn't for the fact he was so ugly. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, and so Slivko, while known at first as an awkward loner who hangs out with kids in his free time, the classic stereotype of a creep, with the rising fame of Shergid will become will transform into a confident, untouchable celebrity who was quickly gaining social and political influence. Yet, this did nothing to slow down his darker desires. Slivko's second victim would be a 15-year-old boy named Alexander Nezmanov, a.k.a. Sasha. A member of Club Shagrid, Alexander had recently been in trouble at school for growing his hair out. You see, after his teacher noticed how long it was getting, she approached Alexander's mom, Anna, demanding he gets a cut. That night, she passed the message along to Alexander, and while at first he tried to keep it a secret, he eventually broke down and told her he was growing it out for a film he was going to be in soon and begged her not to tell anyone. Breaking his trust, she told the teacher anyways. Not long after, his teacher made a point to mock Alexander in front of the entire class, saying things like, quote, Look at what kind of artist we found here. And just absolutely just getting the entire class to crack up laughing at him and embarrass him. In an interview she gave in 2013, Sasha's sister recalled, Sasha always met me when I got home from work. When I came home, he was always there, waiting in the yard with the key or left it for me. I didn't have a key and he was always worried about it. On November 14th, I came home, and he was not in the yard. I waited for him all evening, but Sasha never came home. Knowing how much he loved Shergid, Alex's mother went straight to Slivko, asking if he knew anything, if he had said anything at all about wanting to run away. Slivko told her that they hadn't even spoken. Soon after, the police reached out to Slivko. Trying to spread the word about the disappearance, they were hoping Slivko might have photos of Alexander they could put on the news. To their gratitude, Slivko was not only able to quickly print off high-definition photos, 
but also organize and lead a party of over 200 Trigood members to help aid in the search through the Dawn Forest. Time passed, and after sending divers into the Kuban River and multiple searches of the forest, they were left empty-handed. With all their leads exhausted, the police closed the case, concluding the boy was likely stolen by gypsies. His mother would continue looking for 13 years, writing letters to every official she could and traveling throughout the Soviet Union. The next time he would be seen was in a film playing in court. Dressed as a young pioneer in a white shirt, red tie, black pants, and polished black shoes, everyone would watch as Alexander's limbs were slowly and methodically cut from his body. Now, this is an important turning point in Slivko's development. Unlike when he accidentally killed Nikolai Dobrushev in 1964, when he freaked out and chopped up his body, this time he had been carefully planning the murder, grooming Alexander to look the part of his obsession for long enough that others began to notice his hair. And it was during this murder, when the gloves finally came off, Slivko stopped holding back the more extreme aspects of his appalling desires and started allowing his fantasies to push him deeper and deeper into their depths while capturing every moment on film. For Alexander and the next five boys Slivko killed, he would take his time, upwards of two hours, stretching and positioning their lifeless bodies with rope before cutting off their legs, severing their heads, taking out their eyes, cutting off their nose, ears, and cheeks. Each time, his ceremony would become longer and more intricate, opening up their torso and pulling out their organs before obsessively playing with them in his hands. Placing the limbs in such a way as to frame his victim's severed head, sawing off the end of their shoes with their feet still in them, then pouring gas on their shoes and watching their feet burn. During all this, Slivko would collect the drippings of blood in a special container and slowly drink it with a spoon. Every horrendous moment captured on film, Slivko would watch and masturbate to later with the boy's genitals floating in a glass jar next to him in a private room at Club Shurgit before classes started. Yikes. Damn, it makes you think what your teachers did before class started. <laughs> Thank you, Joey. <laughs> Was he killing them before doing all this stuff? Like, were they dead or were they still alive? <clears throat> they were dead. Oh, okay. I mean, all that, it makes it better, but it, you know? Yeah. Um, we'll we'll kind of dig into his process a little bit uh, well, here pretty soon, but... Um, most of them were suspected of being dead. I did come across a few reports where apparently in some of the films, it looked like he was struggling to finish them off. Um, that was that was rare, um, at least out of the the six murder victims that were completely recorded, completely on tape, everything start to finish. Um, I, I'm assuming it only happened maybe like once or twice. Um, but but generally they were they were dead yeah <clears throat> like does it say how he would kill them at first like were was he suffocating them first 
to death and then cutting hit their yeah. body parts or yeah 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 basically it's um more or less his his uh process involves some form of suffocation or strangulation um at least when it came to his murders uh he did a few different things when it came to the victims that he uh he sexually assaulted um which again i to kind of throw in there the numbers in total between 44 all the way up to 100 kids are expected are suspected of being sexually assaulted by him during this this time period um so what were their age ranges like were they all like younger than 15 or well he had a couple that were around 15 years old and then there was that five-year-old boy i don't recall the five-year-olds there might wasn't i think a, a fifth grader Maybe? That's what I meant. Fifth grader. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um they they say up to seventeen years old. Um, but I did not come across a single murder victim that was seventeen years old. It seemed like fifteen was kind of the, the cutoff for it. He might have um and we'll dig into this here in a minute, but he might have done what was quote called his non lethal experiments. Um to folks up to 17 years old or to boys up to 17 years old um but but yeah in terms of murders he definitely had a a specific age range kind of bouncing around like 11 or 12 years old to 15. one year and six months later on may 11th 1975 just days after the official search for alexander nesmanov was closed an 11 year old fifth grader andre pogasan would go missing on the next day, May 12th, Andre's school bag and clothes would be discovered along the city embankment. The only lead police had as to Andre's whereabouts came after questioning his parents. All they knew was that days before, Andre had asked his mom to buy him new swimming trunks for a film shoot someone wanted him to be in. They didn't know the director's name, just that he would be meeting them in the Dawn Forest. That day, they let him head off to be filmed again okay what's wrong with these parents that they're like okay <laughs> like sure go into the forest a strange man in the woods you say yeah it's like I, come on but these same thoughts like a thousand times reading through these case reports and i can kind of think of like two excuses because i mean especially with um with the with the second victim's mom right with sasha's sasha's mom alexander's mom um like she clearly cared about her kid like she clearly cared a um she had great communication with the teacher close enough that the teacher went to her you know complained and then she communicated with the kid b she spent 13 years looking for him like you know like ain't nobody perfect no parents are perfect whatever but that's like she loved him you know and i and i i can't I can't see those numbers and learn what I've learned about her and not think that she wasn't trying to make the best decisions she could. So that kind of leads me to believe along with the the other cases that kind of come up that, um, you know, where we have a collection of all these serial killers, creeps, pedophiles and stuff like that, that have been kind of like, um, you know, we've become hyper aware of 
in the news since the the 70s 80s 90s in the united states right and we know like don't talk to strangers you know don't get into a van don't do that but at some point in time um it was it was different you know and we also have to remember this is in the context of like kind of like the middle ish slash height of the cold war like the iron curtain was up <laughs> like you still had east and west germany at this time this was a very uh insular uh you know segregated part of the world in terms of media and included on our side in america we were very segregated from their media right like um and so i think that what we're looking at here is that they were learning those cultural lessons but at the time um dude a color camera in the soviet union like <laughs> that was not you know like what like maybe one person in a thousand miles would have something like that so whoever had it was probably officially sanctioned by the government was probably a big deal and was probably legitimate or else how the hell did they get that imported to them you know and so it would it, in my mind i would almost parallel to it if your kid called you and they were like hey is it all right if i do an interview with the news this evening i'm going to be a little bit you know late coming home from school like our minds wouldn't jump to like oh no serial killer you know like we'd be <laughs> like we would be like yeah sure like we would automatically give legitimacy to them but if a serial killer working for the news started to do that whole bit in 20 years, we'd be like, that's insane. Why would you let your kid do that? But at the time, it's like, this seems legitimate. You know, that that's the only way I can justify it. And honestly, that's, um, I kind of have to justify it based off of how I see these parents react. You know, they, it, it wasn't like they were absentee parents or something like that. Like, they gave a fuck about their kids. So if someone is saying you're going to go into the woods and you're going to yes. go look at a camera and you're going to be on camera, the first thing the cops should have said, well, who in this area has cameras? Yes. If, if they're so rare and like they're so uh, they're so rare in the Soviet oh, Union, the first thing they would go okay. is who has cameras? Who's famous enough to get somebody into the woods? Who goes into the woods and knows? Why are all these kids yeah. disappearing from in, the same club? Yeah. The same club so, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I didn't think about that too. Like, oh, why weren't they looking at the obvious, which is same kids from the same place, and who has who keeps filming these kids in the woods? I yeah. mean, honestly, ninety nine percent of serial killers would have been caught if there was a detective that first looked into these things, into the appearances, and just said, "Okay, I'm gonna set up. I see this guy." Yes, and I know it's gonna happen. So yeah, yeah. that's why there's serial killers because the, I mean, not always. Some serial killers are caught pretty quickly. You know, they're caught within yeah. a within a week or two, and that's when they do have. The yeah, they're not all masterminds. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. But yeah, some of them are <laughs> some of them are geniuses that like cover their tracks, know how to work, like Dexter work laws. Yeah, that know how to work against laws, know how to work against cops because there is a set of laws that protects you from being. You know, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. Yeah. So you can't yeah. be. Yeah, that's called being white. <laughs> you can't, yeah. You can't, <laughs> most, yeah. You can't just be arrested for the most part. You know, like <laughs> stupidly, they do it because they do it. And to uh, <laughs> you, the audience can't see. Yeah, it, but you I'm might doing, not, Joey. No, no. The audience can't see, but I'm doing finger guns to Selena. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And, and that is, it's true. It, 
in the I'm, I'm talking about like law law based you know like in yeah. the idea of yeah it, you know you're not supposed oh like to if be. if if it worked <laughs> if it worked yes if yeah you're not supposed yeah. to be okay. the way i'm talking about it you're not supposed to be so in when the idea of it you know that's that's how it works and that's how a lot of them took advantage of it like especially ted bundy those people mm-hmm. they just took advantage of that like they were well liked you know and they could actually move in and out of like some of them, what was Ed Gein was like friends with police. So he would be like, he would ask. Them, no, Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper, thank you. One of the Eds. Uh, he was friends with police. So <laughs> Never trust them, an Ed. Yeah. Um, ask them and talk about it with the police and kind of like make jokes about it and, and stuff like that. So it's just like some of them know how to play the game and some of them got away with it because of that for a while. I mean, obviously we talk about them because they got caught. So that's a super good point. Um, bringing up about the camera, um, bringing up about going into the woods, all this stuff. A, a lot of the things that um, make the, uh, in my opinion, make the ease at which the parents allow their kids to go off into such a situation where where is dangerous now. Um, because it's just it's so rare it's so uncommon it's you know things like that um a lot of those things should have been very very obvious you know dots to connect for investigators and for police and um it's actually leading up perfectly to the next point here but just to just to finish up on the story about andre um well again the boy's parents went to slifco and asked and he again denied seeing or talking to him. Then the police went straight to Slivko, who provided him with, or who provided them with photos of the missing boy. And again, Slivko organized members of Trigid to help with the search in the forest. Now, here's where we have the first fuck up by the police. An investigator on the case of Andre Pogasan's disappearance began putting two and two together and asked the obvious question. Who is this person in the woods that was supposed to film Andre the day he disappeared? He put in an official request to the Novomess Department of Internal Affairs to investigate the suspicious director, but they never followed up on it, and the investigator was transferred to Moscow for more advanced training. Again, they sent divers into the Kaban River to see if they could find his body, and again, they came up empty-handed. So the police just totally dropped the ball here. They had somebody who was clearly a, a good investigator, a talented investigator, um, who very early on, you know, this is, we're looking at, um, I think this is his, his third victim, right? So we're looking at uh, long stretches of time. It was nine years between his second victim and his third victim, right? And we nine already years? had some, <clears throat> or sorry, nine years between his first victim his second victim, and then we had a handful of years between his second victim and his third victim. And this investigator was like, wait a second, hold up. Like, this is matching a profile. We should look into this. Who is this? And put in an official, like, uh, statement basically being like, hey, we need to put resources into finding who this person is. And they just don't follow through with it. They just straight up drop the ball. I want to say that that's a very government thing that happened. I want to say that they saw Anatoly and were like, hey, this guy's a very prominent figure in this community. We don't mm-hmm. want people looking at him like he's 
a murderer or even looking into him. So whether or not that that cop was a very good cop or I mean, he probably was because obviously he, he was doing his job, like supposedly yeah. doing what you're supposed to be doing as a cop is look into the first people that you think could be the, the killers yeah. or like the obvious suspects at first. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> so it just seemed like they were just kind of like, hey, don't look into him because he's a very prominent figure and we don't want to also find out why these other kids went missing the first two you know the first two so it 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 could have very well been that um i didn't find anything specifically like specifically proving that but um as what comes out later um it it, that seems like a a rational jump like yeah totally with it also because uh, they gave him the camera too. Well, the the government did, like the yeah. the full on Soviet government did. So he uh, like how he crazy is like? Oh my god, he used the camera that we gave him for that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think they they knew he had a camera. They knew that the kids at Chagrid like filmed movies. Basically, again, you know, he was one of the few folks that had a camera, right? Or, you know, whatever. Um, And they knew that the kids at Trigrid made movies. You know, they were doing their own stunts. They were writing their own scripts and their own prompts. And that was part of the activities that they did in between, like, these cool camping trips and, like, you know, like, flashlight tag at night and all this other cool stuff that they did. So they knew that there was a camera there. Um, obviously, the news station had a camera, or the TV news station had a camera, and I'm sure a handful of other folks. But you know, this is way, way before Amazon ever came to Russia. Like mm-hmm. getting a camera, not super easy, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, and so it, it should have been a pretty quick list of people to go down and be like, "There's only 28 people within 300 miles that have a camera. Maybe we should start with them," <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they didn't, and they totally dropped the ball, either um, intentionally or unintentionally. They they fucked up. Um, so again, that uh, well, that same year, nineteen seventy five, Slipko's second son Eugene was born, and while it has been impossible to track down the exact date, it seems safe to assume that based on his previous cooldown period and later testimony, it was after he murdered Andre in May. And while the birth of his son seemingly slowed down his bloodlust, it did not hinder his thirst for asphyxiating and sexually assaulting boys. Slivko ramped up his narrative, making it more appealing to the victims of his non-lethal experiments. Um, also, what about all the kids that he told them be- before, like uh, the-, the first time he started it, all the kids that... Uh he talked to and asked them to go film a movie with him in the woods the ones that he would just suffocate and do weird stuff to them like wouldn't the Mm -hmm. kids also be like we know because he has asked asked us to to go into the woods to film yeah he's about to get into that yeah (laughs) no 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 no. um and that's that's like a really good point so this i i picked the specific point right here because um I spent a lot of time trying to nail down where the different narratives, where the different um, uh, 
motivations and his his fucked up things right i spent a lot of time trying to narrow it down to like where the start was where is the earliest point where he starts engaging in certain behavior or saying certain things and um and it was uh like that that point is super poignant like um it was just after his sef- his second son igor or um sorry Eugene was born. Igor was his first son. Um, I know way too much about him. Um, so it was just after his second son was born that he stopped murdering for a while, right? And started going into what's called his his non-lethal experiments. And that was when, um, so while he cooled down with murder, I kind of feel like he, uh, he heated up in terms of his sexual assault and his, non, uh, his non-lethal experiments. Um. Another interesting thing is that having two sons, he started to have the same kind of fantasies about them. Yeah. yeah. And he would masturbate onto their shoes. Ew. Yeah, he he said that later in court. Um, that, and he he said it, and we'll kind of get into this. He said it with a lot of uh a lot of guilt and like you know uh the american judicial system yeah remorse like the american judicial system fucking sucks like if you're if you're pinned with something and they arrest you on something you're charged with whatever um as much as we say not guilty not guilty until proven innocent you still sit and rot in jail until you're proven innocent like there is there is nothing about our judicial system that's like guilty or not guilty until yeah. proven innocent. It it sucks. But with all that said, the Russian one during the Soviet Union, really, really harsh. Like he knew when he was making some of these statements, they would not save his ass. They would not save his character. There was no way when he was saying these things that he thought it would help him in any way. So it kind of, in my mind, puts a layer of honesty on, on top of what he's saying. And, um, Slivko knew he was fucked up. Like, to put it very simply, uh, he was very well aware that he was very fucked up. Um, and it it really does create a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of situation where it's just like when these urges, when these things came over him, he became a fucking monster. But the second they were gone he was you know he was he was like the most innocent person in the world like that the switch that existed in him is it's so fascinating because he wasn't one of these fucking weirdos you know like um like we'll say like like gene or like casey or whatever where it's just like there's a half a body in the tub and i'm just you know taking a shower over top of him for a week and this like he was not like that like it was very much like segregated to specific moments when these these obsessions would just overwhelm him but then he would be totally normal and the greatest person on the planet afterwards it, mm-hmm. it, it's insane like i don't know um so yeah uh slivko ramped up his narrative making it more appealing to the victims of his non-lethal experiments and for the next five years slivko methodically toyed with the balance between life death, knowing full well how to get what he wanted. Thank you so much for listening to this chilling tale of the serial killer Anatoly Slivko. What a brutal person. These research topics come from the amazing listeners like you 
so please keep sending them in to contact at blackcat.report. And remember to follow, like, and subscribe to us on your listening platform. Let's get back to this murderous fellow. He began conducting what is often referred to as his non-lethal experiments. He would convince young boys to volunteer, motivating them with either respect, money, or the removal of penalty points from mishaps at the club. He would even go so far as to tell them this was their chance to be, quote, an invaluable help to science. After they agreed, he would tell them this was to remain secret, that no one should know what they would be doing, and in a further step to groom them, he would tell them not to eat 10 to 12 hours before the experiment. This was his sick way of ensuring they didn't throw up or release their bowels during the process. On the day of, it was common for Slivko to take the young boy down to the river and wash him by hand before giving them an outfit he picked out and meticulously prepared for them to wear. When they would finally reach the spot for the, quote, experiment, he would have the child sign a non-disclosure agreement, which said, quote, Being in sober health and without any coercion, I agreed to conduct a medical experiment with, including loss of consciousness, I swear to keep the fact of participation in this experiment, as well as its results, in complete secrecy, and never tell anyone under any circumstances, end quote. Once signed, Slivko would set up the camera and begin recording as he suffocated the boy until he was unconscious, sometimes with a rope or a rubber hose, sometimes with a closed gas mask or plastic bag, even going so far on occasion as to force them to inhale ether to knock them out. Everything was documented, not just on film to watch and pleasure himself to later, but in highly detailed notes he would take. The date, the time, how the boy's body convulsed on the ground, and the side effects once they woke up, like slurred speech and loss of coordination, he obsessively recorded details down to the second. This fascination with documentation would lead to him saying later in court that he was able to bring the boys to stay, quote, in the next world for nine minutes and still be able to revive them. And if all this wasn't tragic enough, these experiments would leave some of his victims with lifelong disabilities. He also said that he did this, like, he took the notes, he made all the videos, he, like, did all of that so that he could make the most out of the boys. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And that, like, he would say that at a certain point, it would only be a month. He could make the most out of it for about a month until he would get the urge again. Yeah. We have to remember this is uh, the time he was active. If we're counting, if we're counting the first time he did a, a non-lethal experiment, like one of these fucked up rope situations and stuff like that, it's like twenty-one years he was doing this. And again, between forty-four to one hundred um, sexual assault victims, victims, right, and at least seven murders. So this was this was damn near monthly. He was doing this to a different kid every single time in the city. That's what just makes me feel like he was protected by somebody 
a little higher up because eventually if he wasn't at that stature, he would have been found out by somebody. Somebody would have been like, hey, it's that guy. He's and also shows what of how good he is at at separating those worlds, you know? Yeah. Well, he he was so popular because there were kids that were doing terrible in school and like becoming juvenile delinquents and things like that. They would join his club and become like reformed and actually you know, become better, more like well-adjusted people. And it was like a program that it was like a right to be in, you know, like you, it was like everybody, everybody was part of that club. That was part of your childhood. That was part of growing up. And um, that did protect him, like being known as this person that can like be this magical being with children. Yeah. Like that definitely protected him, but he did not, nobody suspected him. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, nobody did. And that one um, person that did got, got shipped, shipped off, got transferred. Yeah. <laughs> because they were so good at their job. Oh, that's why I was asking. Like, the kids had to know something, but because, like, if they hear a kid got murdered, like the last one, and then mm-hmm. they were like, oh, he got murdered in the woods because someone was filming him. Like all the kids in the past that were part yeah. of those experiments that they signed, not to yeah. say anything new about it, but they were probably scared to say anything because they signed a contract. No. This... No. Um, they loved Slivko and they didn't find bodies in the river they didn't find yeah. the people's bodies so all they were hearing were that kids were going missing yeah but they, so one kid was people, taken by gypsies but well, this they didn't know the kids didn't know that kids were dying from these experiments the, this no, does but go- like when they were like oh um when the detective was like well the last the last person that we heard of that saw them was filming them in the woods yeah so i feel like yeah. people talked about that like well the last person that saw them was someone filming in the woods and i feel like at least one of the kids probably was like, "Oh, I was asked to film in the woods once." And this, this is this is where two very important points come up, which I, which is why I've been stressing it the whole time about like how Slivko becomes such a celebrity and he becomes untouchable, you know, and like he he gets to a point beyond suspicion, right? Um, that's how famous he gets. That's like I don't feel like it's an exaggeration to say like in this massive region of Russia. He was holding like a Betty White status of like you're you're a fucking angel, you know. Um, and the so- kids like the kids respected him. They loved and respected him, and they were excited to be a part of these experiments. Yeah. So so it was that, and you also have to keep in mind. Um, I don't know if we. I don't think that we fully clarified it, but Slivko studied um, before getting into this uh, a medical thing a medical anomaly or whatever called retroactive amnesia so when somebody gets suffocated and brought to the point that slivko brought down to a science you know and all of his detailed notes and this and that and knowing he can basically keep somebody on the point of death for nine minutes he would suffocate them and whatever the hell he did to them when they would wake up all they would kind of remember as they were messed up as they you know probably had headaches and aches and pains and all these things terrible things going all they would remember is that they were supposed to be filming that day but the brief time before the experiment and during the experiment they completely forgot 
like 100% forgot. Like Slivko came across this in medical books and was like, that's what I'm going to do. And so like the boys might know that they were supposed to be in these films and this and that and the other. And that's where the, the respect for Slivko, the trust for Slivko, you know, like kind of like become so serious, but then the actual like messed up parts that they, that happened to them, they were completely blank on. They had no idea that like that stuff happened to them because of retroactive amnesia, which was what makes him such a, with such like surgical precision, like so malicious and all of this, where he's like, he was able to sexually assault between 44 to a hundred boys over like 20 something years um, and get away with it. Like none of them are coming out and being like, Hey, this happened to me. You know, you had kids that were uh, 16 at the time, or, you know, 15 at the time, they were 35 when he got caught. Oh, that's right. You know, like this went on for so long. It's in, it's insane to think about, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years in, uh, you had your first like 15 year old where it's like something happened to him. 10 years past that, they were 25. They may have already had a kid. And guess what? There was a good chance that in the next eight years, six years, whatever, their kid was getting signed up into this club ran by Slivko. Like he became a cultural force. Remember, there were over 2,000 members at a certain point. It's insane. Mm-hmm. It's like, it was so huge. Yeah, and like you grow up, you grow up going to Chagrid, you have kids, you send them to Chagrid. Yeah. Because it was so much fun for you. Yeah, and and um, straight up, like, I, I don't have it in here because we have such a big script with this with this episode. Um, I had to find some spots to cut out. But uh, that was something that uh, Tatiana... Um, the the member that we referenced earlier, who basically said he was fugly and stuff like that, um, she she brought up the fact that even after these experiments where the kids were messed up, they loved the club and they loved Slivko so much, they still came back. Like even after the experiments, these kids still came back. They were active members. They would get a little bit older. They would become senior members. They would help organize trips. They never they loved it. And it, like, that's how much of a hold he had on this thing. Whereas like his victims came back and loved it. Wow. It's wild. It's like Barney. <laughs> if Barney. Oh yeah, I remember his dark period. Yeah, oh, the first shit. Barney, remember, was the one who got caught for uh, messing with kids, for molesting kids too. And then they changed it. Oh. Like, yeah, they, then they changed I his color a little bit. Um, because they like Barney's color because they had a new like please don't tell me they made him whiter no no I don't think so Um, but they changed the color a little bit of the dinosaur to kind of show that like the actor changed or something like that or like just to give it a little change it's a new Barney but it's it's just to think about that like you know your 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 icons when you're like a kid and you see these people mm-hmm. it's like the idea you never meet your heroes because you know they're yeah it could be terrible people but like your icons i already met you joey you know like could be like these amazing things you look up to when you're a kid and then like once you get older you find out like terrible things about them you know and it's like not me don't look at me like that but uh <laughs> But like you know, when you're a kid, like you, you revere people more than you do when you're older. You like, you look up to them. You feel like they're older. They know more. They're wiser. Yep. They're like, 
they they live and they can tell you how to live and like you find mm-hmm. out later on like you know 30 years later you're, nobody knows what they're yeah, doing yeah, like nobody knows uh, what they're doing and like they could be terrible people or they could be like crazy yeah. or they could have done crazy stuff or be in jail and you're just like whoa it's, it's just an interesting thing because like going back these kids kind of referencing these kids like you know the ones that weren't molested at this time you know even the ones i guess that were still like revered this guy is like still did he's a he's a genius like he's like an amazing person he's helping us he's getting these people off probably some of the kids off the streets he was like that probably didn't have parents he was yeah that didn't have parents to even help them to guide them too so he kind of became their parent in a lot of ways and kind of like guided these kids so in the similar way that like once they get older they don't understand you know because you kind of want always that nostalgia to look back and be like oh i had good times and may not want to remember like oh man this thing happened to me this thing that's horrible well they couldn't it was completely wiped from their memory exactly yeah yeah like they couldn't anyways but you know some of the other kids like start if they start you know because you you, i i would feel like some of the other kids would start noted like maybe one or two of the kids were starting noticing like okay like he was in our group before and like he he seems a little different now you know what i mean like yeah but why would they tie it to slivko when they have so much loyalty and respect exactly for him? that's yeah. what i mean and, too, the, is like, and the kids the kids were told from the beginning to keep it secret yeah well that's the yeah, yeah so no other kids would know well no yeah. they they wouldn't know but you know obviously some people talk i mean i imagine that some in this whole thing i imagine that they talk but like they never really thought it was slivko you know and they really mm-hmm. you know they didn't want to tar- even tarnish their reputation of the guy that is leading them as their father so even if there yeah. was like somebody was saying something like oh this guy has been a bit weird to me today you know what i mean like if there was yeah. even a time i feel like the kids were just like no it's it's nothing you know what i mean like it will we'll, um we'll definitely get to a point where the uh um let's just say like the 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 rumors start the up the veil comes off yeah, yeah the yeah. the veil starts to come off um starts to grow thin and um we'll definitely get to that but like his system was so airtight like his system was so airtight from start to finish that like this dude just totally shit you know which is what makes him such a monster he didn't do this for a week and get caught all the while, Slivko's fame and the notoriety of Club Chagrid was skyrocketing. By 1977, Slivko personally knew nearly all of the high-ranking officials and leadership in and around the, civ- the city of Nevenmusk. One official, Kostina, the third secretary of the city party committee, was widely known for absolutely idolizing Slivko. Along with being a constant advocate for Slivko and Chagrid, Costina would regularly make sure that Chagrid always had steady access to scarce Soviet goods and resources, such as free busing, equipment, and in particular, condensed milk, which was a rarity at the time. As Costina rose up in the ranks of local and regional leadership, she never faltered in her vocal support of Slivko, tying her own career to his achievements. Ultimately, when the region was given the rare opportunity to award one of their own teachers with the title of Honored Teacher of the RSFSR, she would go out of her way 
to bend the rules set forth by the Central Committee of the Soviet Union to have the award given to him, which absolutely pissed off teachers in the region. Slivko didn't have any of the qualifications to even receive this award. It would be like if um, Jessica Simpson won uh, Best Songwriter of the Century or something like that. It's just like, girl, you didn't even write your music. Like, what? get out of here. <laughs> right? Um, th- and this is like, this is a huge deal. These awards were only handed out every so many years. There was allowed to be a new candidate in the Soviet Union, at least at this time. And when there was allowed to be a new candidate, they uh, the Soviet Union would pick one region or a handful of regions in the entirety of the Soviet Union and say, okay, you're allowed to elect one person to receive this award. And this this position, right, the honored teacher of the RSFSR, um, it was basically like, it was like the Medal of Honor for teachers, right? And you had to have been teaching like a post-secondary education. You had to be teaching like higher education. Slivko wasn't doing that. He was just some dude running a youth club. So it it stood out, and it, it, it comes back to bite some folks in the ass later. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. But to, so, yeah, well, on top of that, he started receiving awards left and right, not just the Honor Teacher Award, right? Um, news articles were constantly being published about him and Chagrid, and at least 24 times, Slivko's achievements were highlighted on the all-union radio station, which was a national radio program. Hmm. This is in the 70s. Radio still held some clout back then. So, hmm. like, at least 24 times, Slivko's name and reports about what he was doing and Chagrid and how awesome he was was being broadcast nationally across the entirety of the Soviet Union for people to idolize. This dude was huge. Um, And to add even more to the madness, Slivko would go on to be elected as a deputy of the Nevinmesk City Council in that same year. This dude took off like the Macarena. Like, literally everybody was doing this Slivko. Everybody's just like, yeah, Slivko! <laughs> like, just like, so fucking stoked. So hyped on him, right? Like, it's, I, I can't, I've said it a million times, I can't say it anymore from reading way the hell too much about him, but like, he was huge, right? Everybody knew his name. Everybody wanted to be like him. He was a poster child of the Soviet Union for this period of time. Well, in June of 1980, Slivko took the life of his fourth victim, another member of Chagrid, 13-year-old Sergei Fatnov. The search for him would last for a year. Slivko, again, would help aid in leading the search, and not once when investigators noticed the fact that Andrei Pogosan in 1973, Alexander Nesmanov in 1975, and now Sergei Fatnov were all young boys and all members of Chagrid. Slivko was so far beyond suspicion that criminal investigators looking for any sort of connection between these disappearances didn't even think to connect these dots. Moving on, though the names and the dates of Slivko's fifth and sixth murder victims are still unknown. With that said, I feel confident after learning way the hell too much about Slivko that they must have taken place between June of 1980 and July of 1985. I bring this up 
because after checking sources, I realized that three websites were all referencing each other in a circle jerk of false information. Specifically, 15-year-old, and I apologize for, for butchering the name, uh, Vyacheslav Slava Kovistik, who I'm just going to call Slava, um, is being cited online as being the names of one, or as being the name of Slivko's sixth murder victim. But then, somehow, magically, a 15-year-old named Vyacheslav Slava Kovistik appears years later to give critical testimony that leads to Slivko's arrest. And well, so he wasn't murdered. He wasn't murdered. Um, it, it basically, I think, I mean, cause I had to go through, I had to translate documentaries. I had to translate like so many articles and stuff like that out of Russian into English. I think what happened early on when articles about Slivko were getting written was that people saw his name and they saw the word victim next to it and they understood the date and him being a victim as him being a murder victim and not being one of the victims of his sexual assault of his non-lethal experiments right um and i think he got kind of pinpointed there but that name is if y'all saw the spelling um <laughs> the name is very unique and i can't imagine that you know multiple kids at this exact same time had the exact same <laughs> name it seems too too much of a coincidence. And the exact same age. The exact same age, everything. I'm like, I'm pretty sure this kid, yeah. I I dug so hard. I mean, we actually we took an extra week. I dug so hard to try and the name try to find the names and the dates of his fifth and sixth victim. Um could for the life of me not find it. I did go through and tie all of the testimony, I tied all of the reporting, I tied all of the news events, I tied everything to to give you the sequential order that I just delivered to you in part one and now in part two. So I'm positive he did not kill his uh, two folks up until this point, basically after 1980. At some point after his last victim in 1980, he, he had to have made his, his other two murders. Can't find their names. <laughs> but everything else got nailed down, trust me. <laughs> and I will have all of the show notes and everything with this episode, I'm going to be making an awesome timeline. I'm very stoked to release all this research. Um, but yeah, anyways, <clears throat> I did want to want to take this moment to say that um, while all of Slivko's victims should be recognized, Slava should be known. Um, he should be known as and remembered for his bravery and coming forward through a wall of silence later on. And that's why I really wanted to take this moment to call call attention to this he was not one of the murder victims and what he does later on is is incredible and is brave and he should not be just kind of uh checked off as another murder victim because he makes a very important decision and it changes everything for a lot of children's lives so i wanted to say that here um but with all that said this does lead us to slivko's last murder victim sergey Pavlov. On July 23rd, 1985, 13-year-old Sergei left home, telling his mother and sister he was heading down to the river to go fishing. Upon leaving his house, he ran into his neighbor, Linda Flovinka, and either out of boyish excitement or by mistake, he slipped up and told her that he was off to meet the head of Club Chagrid to be photographed for a magazine. 
Before long, Sergei's mother realized something was off. He'd left his fishing pole at home. That evening, Sergei didn't come back. At some point, uh... yeah. At some point, Linda, the neighbor, found out about Sergei not coming back and called over to Shagrid, speaking directly to Slivko. She asked if he had seen Sergei, to which, like every other time, he replied, no. The next day, before the police could talk to Slivko, he took off for a trip to the Black Sea with a group of club members. For the next few months, the police proceeded to suspect everything from an accident or from an accidental drowning to everyone, including Sergei's own mother, as being responsible for his disappearance. Never Slivko. Finally, on November 13th, 1985, an investigator named Tamara Langeva took over the case. She was the first person who treated the boys' disappearances for the past 21 years as related. With that perspective in mind, she quickly discovered almost all of them were members of Chagrid. Finally, we love her. <laughs> yes. Like, Tomorrow's a badass. Say, Jesus Christ. About to say, we needed to get a woman in there. And shipped off too and being like, oh, you're such a great detective. You actually figured it out. It's just like they're testing ground. No, she was a woman. Oh, yeah, of course they wouldn't give her a promotion. Yeah, yeah she, was, she was a woman, so she didn't get promoted, which gave her just enough time. Come on, Joey. <laughs> Sorry, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting. It's okay. It's okay. Um, but yeah. Adding to this lead, this this incredible connection that Tamara quickly started to make. I mean, again, we're looking at like July to November, like just a handful of months to come in as the investigator and be like, wait a second. And then to dig up these old records and be like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Like that was a lot of work. Y'all, this is way the hell before computers were being regularly used. She was doing hard investigations. Like she was doing the real hard shit. Full shout out to her. Um, well, adding to this lead was Elena uh, Proyoda. While working in a special children's room at the police station, Elena had been hearing rumors from the kids about, quote, a secret cinema and, quote, experiments run by Slivko, exactly like Betsabe said earlier. Elena, al- finally! <laughs> yes. Elena, along with Tamara, then went to Club Chagrid and began asking the boys questions. They went boy to boy for hours, asking if they had been in any secret films or participated in or participated in any experiments. Other than admitting to being in movies with kind of strange plots, no one would talk. That was until Vagislav Kovalslik, Slava, whose name I cannot pronounce for the life of me. Um, the boy that I mentioned earlier that's uh, wrongly uh, labeled as the sixth murder victim. That was until Slava spoke up and gave them official testimony stating, quote, Slivko hung him in a loop, after which he lost consciousness and then was unwell for several days. This was wow. the moment. This was the exact moment. And after that, other boys began stepping up and talking to the investigators. It was Slava that broke this case. They, they had spent hours being like, hey, have you had that or that? And trying to connect with the kids. Nobody would do it. Slava stepped forward and said, 
I vaguely remember doing this. That was enough for them to build up the suspicion and be like, there's something here. And that was enough that the other boys respected Slava and were like, oh, I guess we can tell these folks what's going on, even though we signed this non-disclosure agreement, even though there's all these secrets, even though there's all these everything. So all the huge, massive amount of respect to Slava. He did what was right, um, and I hope he gets remembered for it. Well, with verified rumors, victim testimonies, and clear connections between cases in hand, Tamara presented her case to the prosecutor of Nevin Mesk. She requested a search warrant for Club Chagrin. The prosecutor looked it over and didn't believe her. She literally had to argue with him until he realized that Slipko was the only suspect left and finally granted her a warrant to search the premises of Chagrin. Oh my like he the prosecutor Jesus. fought the investigator saying no there's no way there's no way da, 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 and just kept fighting her and fighting her and fighting her until eventually she, it was just so obvious so like dude this is the last suspect we have left in this entire province look at this and look and, at the case know, and you know how that how i can imagine that went the prosecutor was just just standing there just like all right i'm gonna let you go do it but if you're wrong, you're giving your badge up. It's yeah. over. <laughs> I, and she's like, yeah. I literally will bet my career that this is the one guy that did it, you know? <laughs> yes. I that that can't be far from the truth. Like yeah. she she fucking kept pushing. Um She's a push. <laughs> <laughs> and it was <laughs> and it was on December twenty-eighth, nineteen eighty-five, Slivko's forty-seventh birthday. Wow. <laughs> What is that Sagittarius Scorpio? I have it written down. Yeah, they're usually Sagittarius or Scorpius or um, I think it was Virgos. <laughs> I think like, he's they're a all like serial killers. Sagittarius, got to be a Sagittarius. Um, anyways, so wait, and it was wait, December twenty. What was the birthday again? <laughs> I, I want to December twenty eighth, nineteen eighty five. I'll get back to the build up, audience. Trust me. But we do need to know this. This is important for at least 6% of our audience. It's a Capricorn. What? December 28th? You guys were off. December 28th. There's no way. Yeah. What? And it was on December 28th, 1985, Slivko's 47th birthday. The police showed up at Club Chagrid and finally acted on their search warrant. In the typical cop style, they flipped the place, looking over everything, under desks and tables, pulling out boxes, uh, sifting through the contents. They just went in full-on like SWAT team style and just started wrecking the place, trying to find anything, any evidence at all. Nothing. They couldn't find shit. That was until maybe one of the most ridiculous moments in world police history. After searching through every nook and cranny of the club headquarters and coming up empty-handed, a cop finally pointed to a door with a bright red sign on it that said, and I quote, don't go in, he'll kill you. And he asked, what's in there? He's like, that's just my clothes. 
Slipcut. He's like, I got an inkling. <laughs> yeah. Some don't feel right. This fucking Russian. Some don't feel he's right. Like this fucking his mustache. He's like, yeah. I got a feeling. He's like, he's like, yeah. Shut the fuck up, rookie. There's no way you just got here. You don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, I don't know, Saj. I think there might be something in there. And he's like, ah. If you're wrong, you're doing push-ups. I don't know what the fuck you threaten him with, but like, but it was so stupid. Like the the breakdown of the search is like they're flipping tables and they're doing this and the da 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 and it's like a it's like a manila like a picture of like your classroom in school you know like very plain kind of like you know uh, neutral colors and just a big ass bright red sign that literally says with little kids all around it don't go in he'll kill you oh my god <laughs> like opening lunch boxes printed food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the cops are like god damn it where's the evidence and then finally one of them's like I have an idea. It might be in there. It's so stupid. I can't get over how dumb this was. Oh um, so anyways, in that moment, when the cop asked what's in there, Slivko's face notoriously went from calm to an enraged fear. The police opened it. To <laughs> Inside, there were stacks and stacks of photos with children bound and hanging Literally hundreds of feet of film where Slivko was clearly visible, torturing, killing, and decapitating boys. There were jars with preserved genitals, pioneer uniforms, piles of shoes, some with the ends sawed off. There were ropes, rubber hoses, hatchets, knives, literally everything. Everything he was using for his non-lethal and his lethal experiments, all of it was right there the whole time. And once the shock of what they saw passed, the police immediately arrested him. Now, even though with this room in full view, a little boy there began crying, yelling, Uncle Tolia is being taken by the police. I I can't nail that down any better. Like... Even with seeing this, the children seeing this stuff being pulled out, the kids loved him so much. They were throwing tantrums that he was being taken. Once arrested, it, it, it took almost no pressure before Slivko confessed to everything. I mean, obviously, like he was on film. It was so clearly documented. You couldn't be more red-handed, even in Red Russia. Like, you could not <laughs> be more stuck in that. And between January and February of 1986, he would admit to the murders of seven boys and help direct police to the locations of most of their bodies, right? <clears throat> in the meantime, though, before the realization of why he was arrested fully set in, the community was enraged. So at first, it was just rumors when they first took him in. They weren't announcing to the public why or this or that. You know, it was just a rumor mill. They assumed he was arrested for something minor like stealing Soviet property, which at the time was a crime nearly everyone was guilty of. It would be like, I, shit, in Soviet Russia, that would be the equivalent of like jaywalking. You're like, why the fuck would you arrest this incredible person for something so stupid? You know? It's like if you grab an apple from a tree there, they were just like, that's Soviet property. You're going to jail. Yeah, yeah exactly. Pretty much. <clears throat> and like everybody did it. You yeah, know? Yeah. Um, but when word finally spread, 
the people of the city proceeded to burn down Slivko's property while the police sat back and watched. Like, the, all of the love, all of the passion, all of the respect, 180, 100%, 180. People were fucking pissed. But this was not before a criminal investigation inspector, Batra Akev, carried out his order to gather up Slivko's wife and two sons and take them to a nearby train station and literally sent them off to a location that even he didn't know. Orders came down from the top in the Soviet Union. You need to get their family the fuck out of there. I found the direct quote. I have him in the documentary straight up saying, like, Why? I had to rush in in the middle of the Because of the, of the backlash. Dude, people... Yeah. Because of the backlash, they were they were not they were innocent. His family was innocent. Yeah. So but the people didn't care. The back yeah. the people did not care. They burnt down his house. Oh yeah, like they were gonna kill his wife. If his wife and kids yeah, if his wife and kids were inside, yeah. They would have died. And like how could you believe And they that? knew there would be a huge backlash. Oh yeah. I mean, how could you believe, you know, like if, if your neighbor was doing something like this? And then their wife comes out and is like, we had no clue. You wouldn't believe them in a moment of like that kind of rage and frustration and finding out what might have happened to your own kid. You would not believe them. You would want vengeance. Like, Super. Pitchforks. I mean, I, would, I do wonders like how did his wife not even like know anything especially if he has a room that says don't look in here <laughs> well, that, well, they, that's at the club and she notoriously never went to the club she oh, hated the club that was at the club i thought that was in she house. did not <laughs> yo no that was at the club he would go into that room before classes and watch his videos of him like murdering torturing and molesting boys and then go out and be like ready kids let's go on a trip yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. and and it, it was brought up in some quotes, like the, the rare occasion where one of the club members brought up his wife and was like, how come she never joins us, Uncle Tola? You know, like they were all like, hey, come on, where's, where's auntie? You know, it was one of the few times where he would get like a shit face with them and would be like, I don't want to talk about that. And it, it was enough of a, a tone for a minute. When you're like 11 years old and an adult just switches in character like that, you're like, yeah. oop, never talking about that again. Like, yeah. it, it was it was very obvious to kids. You do not bring up Uncle Toya's, like, you know, wife. You do not bring her up. And <clears throat> and she would often say, like, uh, you know, basically, like, Slipko was a lazy piece of shit at the home. Like she fucking, he was like, he was a horrible husband. He was never home, never helped take care of the kids, like was constantly busy with like with the club. And it, it makes sense. The club became insanely successful. It's because he completely ignored his family and everybody and all. Yeah. Of so she. Yeah. So she resented it. Yeah, she completely resented it. She hated it and he didn't want anything to do with her again. He yeah. didn't like women. Um, and he didn't like men either. He was a fucking pedophile. Mm -hmm. You know, he liked specifically little boys. Um, and like, he barely managed to have two kids. They, they, it was quoted that like, in all of their years of marriage, they only had sex 12 times. Like, that was a direct quote from him. Like, they were not in good relationships. <laughs> you yeah, know? He, it seems like he wanted to keep the lives separate, too. Like, totally. he wanted to like... yeah. Like, yeah, keep this but he never brought them home. He never brought any of the trophies or anything home. 
he kept it all there. He would make sure that it was out in the woods where yeah. he could hide everything or clean it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he covered his tracks. He covered his tracks really well. And um but you know, even before all that was fully understood, um I will give props to whoever called the order. Um, you know, they got his family the fuck out of town. And like whoever the fuck from wherever the fuck that was a good move because the town proceeded to go through and burn down any any remnant of slivko his memory everything all of the shit with the club was completely liquidated it was either sent off to other places other locations for like hard equipment and materials it was just people people basically had a fucking cultural riot they were like Fuck this. this is 20 something years of this club in our lives multiple generations at that point they fucking wiped everything out when word finally came down and that family needed to get the fuck out of there um yeah, and you think about it too it's just about like a lot of these people's families were in it and you know they might have felt a lot of guilt in yeah. that they were letting this happen in their own backyard to themselves maybe not even remembering it their family yep their families so they got so angry that they were just like we have to it has to go somewhere you know this well this has to go somewhere so we have to go well speaking of that um and that that's perfect because that leads right into what happens next um it was also around this time that costina the third secretary of the city party committee who was such a massive supporter of slivko locked herself in her apartment and committed suicide. Oh, wow. Like that is how serious this fallback came. Like while the town was going around and doing this person who, who built her career, who, you know, bended the rules to get him this award as honored teacher who da 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 all this stuff like that. It was so serious. Like one of the main party officials in the region killed himself mm-hmm. out of shame, just straight up out of shame. Wow, that's That's so how terrible. hard this hits. Well, for the next few months until his trial in June, Slivko would rot in a cell, allegedly attempting to commit suicide twice. This is a very strong allegedly. I was only able to find one reference for this, but once after he found razor blades left on his mattress, which based off the way the town reacted, not surprising somebody would a guard or somebody would just leave some razor blades like fucking kill yourself dude you piece of shit well considering the massive number of non-lethal victims and murders uh, the trial was short Uh, during it Slivko was seen crying and apologizing nonstop. when his videos were finally presented as evidence he was asked if he had anything to say any objections to any of the people present seeing them. He replied, and I quote, I express the wish uh, to the investigation that the circle be as narrow as possible. What will be presented now, even to the human race, is a disgrace. I saw it once, and this can neither be washed away nor forgotten. It will leave only in death. I am scared that people will watch it. 
After that, the court filled with mothers, fathers, friends, and family of those who went missing finally started watching the films. For the victims' families, seeing their loved ones being choked to death before being decapitated was the only closure they would find after years of hope and searching. People began to have heart attacks. The city would literally end up having ambulances on standby outside of the courthouse during the viewings. Once this was all over, Slipka was found guilty and sentenced to death. They should have had the town take care of him. I, I mean, yeah, but I, the first time I read that line about the ambulances and heart attacks and stuff, I was like, this is exaggeration. I cited this across at least six different sources, uh, including the, uh, Tamara, the lead investigator, uh, one of the documentaries I hunted down and translated, um, she also cited it. Like, this is a common thing. People were literally having heart attacks watching these videos. I have never heard of a case with a murderer, a serial killer, whoever the fuck in history, where when evidence was being presented in court, they needed to have ambulances on standby for the people viewing the evidence. This is how bad it is. I I, I don't know. This is, yeah. this is what puts Slivko, like, honestly... You know, we can try to make the comparisons for folks that have never heard his name and stuff like that. But this is what really puts him in his own category. Like, he is his own fucking category, in my opinion. Other people might have little elements of this and that. But even those people have elements of this and that between different different serial killers and stuff. Slipko is his own evil. And it's the only way I can put it. This is something I I, I came across multiple times and I couldn't... I couldn't leave out because I think that it it kind of really puts the puts the capstone on who Slivko is as a person, and I think that it's important to understand for his character. And I'm going to quote now from one of the sources, which I'll have in the show notes, from a letter from Slivko to his wife, June fifteenth, nineteen eighty six. Dear Lumilda, forgive me for all. It was only in prison that I realized I had no right to marry and have children. I am a freak. I am sending you a list of signs of my deviation. Keep them a secret, but watch the kids. The most important thing is to become their friend. You must know their thoughts and dreams. Take courage and tell adult children about my deviation. Doctors do not recognize this as insanity, but the power of vice is such that I lost my mind and obeyed the evil will. Did anybody catch what he just did there? Yeah. He was saying that um, what he has could be hereditary and 
a mother needs to watch out for the sons and make sure that they don't have the same symptoms that he has. Yeah, dude, he was, this is a handful of months after he was arrested. Um, you know, right around the time that he went into court, he knew 100 fucking percent, nothing he would say, do anything would save him. So I, I really do take this as an honesty. Um, and he knew how fucked his relationship with, was with his wife. And yeah, he he was apologizing. He was like, I should have never had kids. I should have never had kids. I knew something was wrong with me. I knew something was fucked in my head. I should have never gotten married. I should have never had kids. And, and, And he was basically begging her, like, no matter what, remain their best friend. Become their best friend. And if they ever start to show signs, you need to be concerned. And he gave her a list of his symptoms, of his illnesses, his mental illnesses, things like that, that uh, professionals were labeling him as. And was like, watch out for these. I don't want our kids to go through this. Studying him is 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 as fascinating as it is despicable. Like, um, because there is no way that he could take things to the level he did if it was just his cover for things. Like, it it can't. Like, reading into it, I'm like, no, there was two direct sides of him. And not in the the pop culture way of saying he was bipolar or something. No, 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 no. None of that mislabeling kind of shit. Like, I literally think his wires were born crossed. That's it. Like, 100%. Like, there was a strong split in his character that that was organic and it was natural and it made him the fucking monster he was because the the success that he achieved the dedication that he showed in between his sexual pressures and things like that like was was immense like this dude fucking went went so insane with like how much effort and energy and work he put into this club and put into kids and he was such an excellent leader um I really do think he was aware the whole time that there were two sides to his coin. I don't think that it was like a, oh shit, that happened, and then he remembered it. No, I think he was fully aware, and he felt like shit about it. That doesn't make him less or more innocent or anything like that, but like it... He was a tormented soul, and guilty at the same time, and I think that that's hard to to hear and to accept in certain ways, but I, I can't view him any other way. You know, well, anyways, for the next three years, Slipko would rot in solitary confinement. And in the true Russian fashion, he had no clue when he would be called out for his execution. Every time the door opened to his wing of the prison, every shout, every yell down the hall tormented him. He had literally no idea for three years 24 7 every little cling ping everything if they were bringing him out to be executed he was in hell he was he was just straight up in hell and rightfully so good yeah yeah Yeah. um his last visit would be from the detective investigating another serial killer kostev the man in charge of tracking down who would later be identified as 
Andre Chicatello. On September 18th, or sorry, September 16th, 1989, within hours of Kostev's last interview with Slivko, he was pulled out of his cell, brought into a room, and shot in the back of the head. It would be the exact same place that Chicatello would be executed three and a half years later. he was doing a terrible job he did not help them at all he was useless so this guy was interviewing him to try and tell him like hey um let's try to build a serial killer profile like what do you think his mannerisms are and he's like oh he's probably like me he probably does things like i do yeah and they were like no that's not really fitting and then they were like, okay, last interview, all right, well, thanks for nothing. And then he got executed. Well, I mean, it feels like, too, that he wasn't like a lot of other serial killers. Like, he wasn't really, like, looking for fame or looking for, like, the idea of being able to help, you know? Like, or at least self-aware enough to help for other serial killers. What do you mean? Like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, to, to figure out other serial killers. Like, he wasn't, you know, like, the other ones we talk about, like, where they're just, like, oh, cool. Like, maybe he's as cool as me, but he's not as cool as me. You know, like, how a lot of the other ones yeah, talk. Yeah, like, they, they talk like down. Charles Manson. Yeah, they talk <laughs> down about other ones, you know, and, like, but still are able to help yeah. because they're, they're giving, like, ideas. But it does seem like he wasn't, like, he was self-aware, but he wasn't self-aware enough to, like, help you know like he just didn't have that that thing like he knew he was messed up you know he he like you're saying he wasn't proud of like other serial yeah. killers are, are very proud of what they do like yeah he wasn't he was really remorseful mm-hmm. like which is the opposite oh and then now that gill is back do we think he's a product or process killer Okay, so a product killer kills for the final product, the dead body. That's what gives them pleasure. A process killer gets pleasure from the process of murdering. Well, definitely a process. I think so too. The thing is, he did end up with product, but the, the reason he ended up with product, which was like films and notes and pictures and mementos like their shoes and stuff like that, he ended up with product, but it was because he was so obsessed with the process mm. and documenting and relishing in each part of the process. He took time to play with the body parts to make them look mm. pretty by framing the severed heads with limbs. Yeah. He 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 had a special container to take their blood and a spoon Ugh. for drinking it with. 
like I think he was a process killer because maybe in the beginning it was a product thing, but once he started to give in, he turned into a process killer, I think. Yeah. Okay. I could I could see that. I'm actually I'm looking through my notes right now. There is a specific quote um that I didn't include in the outline. Give me give me a moment. If y'all wanna keep Want to keep arguing over product or process, Joey? What's your thoughts? I mean, he could be both. I I think that he, at the beginning, yeah, he wanted the product. Like he just, because he didn't even mean to kill the first one, you know. Like, so at the end, he kind of just he wanted the pro. He was wanting the product of like, yeah, he 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 kept meticulous notes of everything he did. He kept meticulous notes of everything he did. So, like, that's part of the process, I feel like, in saying that he could be a process killer because he literally diagnosed everything. He had it for later. But if you add that together, that's saying that that part of it is a product because he had it for later. So I do think that he Mm -hmm. he was both. Like, he really just, he didn't... He was some weird mixture of both. He was a weird mixture of both. And I feel like he just evolved into both because he wasn't doesn't or devolved devolved yeah he didn't act like other serial killers to be honest like he really didn't because i feel like a lot of most serial killers they want to be caught you know like in a way they because they want the attention and like they want the notoriety yeah like they'll do things that are kind of like catch me if you can you know and like he mm-hmm. was very careful with that in a way. Uh, I mean, wasn't like, it? Even, was even, it what? I was gonna say, was it BTK? Didn't he um, mail the police? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. A letter, <laughs> like either his fingerprints or his saliva was on it, and they were like, Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Come yeah, on. like Come on. like a lot of them, they do things like that, and you know they're proud of it and blah blah blah. But like he was like very careful in that way and like i mean he even had like the kids sign a contract you know like okay who does that um yeah so i feel like like uh yeah he's definitely like gilbert said like he's in his own category and like he goes he surpasses every other serial killer i mean at least the ones that i've heard of you know like for all the things that he did so um he yeah like he could be like you said like both a process and um what's the other one a product product yeah. so so i want to i want to hear y'all's take and i i really hope we keep this in post edits joey cuz this is this is something selena and i have been trying our best to like to bicker about and to figure out about and to, to come to a conclusion on for weeks and i really do think that any fan of true crime is going to like He's such a middle ground. He's such a solid middle ground between the expectations of process and product killer, the two classic breakdowns of them. Um, but I, I have a long quote here. Um, so so bear with me during this. But this is a direct quote from Slivko. Okay. When I dismembered the victim, I did not feel disgust, but subconsciously assessed the situation. Some thoughts assess the bad side of my actions. Others, stronger ones, force me to do the bad and pretended satisfaction. 
He buried corpses and body parts and burned clothes with gasoline. I prepared everything in advance. For each sexual intercourse, I needed to see blood. But after the release of sexual pressure, that is, after satisfying the passion, common sense suggested that often this should not be done, that it was very bad, and I was constantly looking for new opportunities, intermediate options not related to murder. There was an idea to take as many photos as possible so that after looking at them, reproduce the whole process, getting excited, getting satisfaction. Sometimes he used the imagination of what had happened before. Quote, I had such feelings for my sons. When no one was at home and I had sexual pressure, I imagined my sons in similar situations and masturbated on their shoes. Go on a little bit further. Imagination worked, and I needed to restore everything that had happened and get pleasure. At these moments, I did not feel any fear. After one of the murders, I took the victim's clothes and watch. These integral parts caused me an increased understanding of the past events. I tried to make a doll so as to not kill the living, but to use the doll to relieve sexual pressure. This guy is such an in-between. Other than the fucked up shit. I'm, I'm sorry, I've read it like 19 times. I forgot you guys are hearing it for the first time. Um, but, but like this guy is such an in-between and, and fucked up that like I cannot hear him. I cannot see what he, what he said, what he wrote, you know, these quotes and not be like, no, he was organically 100%. You know, you look at the squiggly brain underneath a scan and I just literally think one of them pipes were connected in the wrong way. Like it was just, it was, it was organic in him. Again, you know, uh, tons of kids experienced the same fucked up shit when they were growing up in World War II Russia, right? Like tons of kids may have had uh, normal to semi-abusive families, didn't become serial killers, you know, but his behavior back when he was, um, and they saw fucked up shit, like when the, the Nazi shot the kid and the dog at the same time, the blood splattered on his boots. But, it, like, tons of kids saw that terrible stuff, and they did not become serial killers. I, I think from the get-go, he was wrong. He was just wired wrong. It wasn't a chemical imbalance. I think he was just hardwired wrong from the get-go. And, like, I don't know if he can match any any serial killer I've ever heard of, which means that he kind of falls out of the demographics of product or process because he, he was so obsessed with creating processes, but it was from this, this, this guilt of taking lives. Like he felt guilty taking lives. At some point, he, he gave into those desires and he really sunk into them and just kept going for it. But like, he didn't want to. Like, I, I think that, you know, it was that, you know, put the phrase this way, but that like post come, like his head was clear and he was just like, I should never do this again. And it was turned off where um, I feel like with a lot of serial killers, they don't just come and then they're like, oh shit, I fucked up. Like, it's like, there's still a serial killer. They're still fucked up in the head, you know? So Ko was not like that. 
Like it was literally a sexual like connection to this fucked up shit. And for whatever reason, it was so heightened to this extreme point. And it, it also does, you know, his testimony does kind of go to justify the fact that he documented everything in such insane detail, because I do think it was, it was tormenting him, these desires. Um, and that doesn't make him innocent or anything. Um, but I do think he was legitimately tormented by it. And the only reason why I give him that pass there is that um, the, the insane success of what he did, the insane like status that he meant could not have been done if it was a simple cover. You know, if he was just trying to keep a simple cover, he wouldn't have invested that much fucking time into it. Especially when nobody for 20 something years even came close to suspecting him. He would not have put that much dedication into it. He would just been like, whew, they bought it. Moving on to the next victim. You know, like he really did believe it and it and it showed in how he developed as a leader for these children and like his his skills. And like I don't know. But if you want to go simple product or process, um, he kept he kept the young children's, you know, genitals in jars, masturbated next to him while he watched videos of him being decapitated. And I would argue that the videos, that the images, all that stuff, they, they cross a boundary between process and product because the videos and the documentation and the physical uh, paraphernalia from the events, those are physical products. But at the same time, they are meant to bring him back. But at the same time, isn't that why product killers do their thing is to remind them of those events. So where the hell is he? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Who's just Slivko, you know? Everybody do the Slivko. <laughs> do do. <laughs> I'll have to go on the Instagram. I have had to make Slivko. my own song about everybody dancing to a dance called the Slivko in order to stay sane during this. Don't judge I'm me. Sure. <laughs> it's not been fun on that end, but what was I supposed to bring up, y'all? Unless y'all had some other thoughts on the product process. There's something I asked about earlier. Oh! I thought we were done. <laughs> we're about to end. The last point is, I want to say, after all this insane research, this episode is not for the casual listener. Uh, this episode yeah, is not... we have, like, a heads up. There is. Oh, we will. We will. But... But I want to say when you say when you do the trigger warning, make sure to do like violence, sexual assault, and like tell them what it is. It's bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I did want, and I wanted to include this, include this in if possible, Joey. I know there's a bottle of choppy spots, um, but nobody knows about him in the English-speaking world. Really, a handful of folks, right? Um, we pioneered research on him and uh, basically whooped Wikipedia's ass in terms of citations and quotes and things. Um, I want this episode to be understood as this is a podcaster's episode. This is an episode for other podcasters in the future to reference. 
to find resources from and to do their own episodes on and for Slivko to become known about in the same way that other serial killers are known about today. But I understand that this man is so obscure at the moment of this being recorded. A handful of people are aware of him. So this episode ain't for fame. This episode ain't for numbers. But I guarantee you, the work put into this episode will hold up over time. And if you're one of the casual listeners, congratulations. You are way the fuck ahead of the curve. So, you the shit. <laughs>